Esther chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther has invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthanar and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour. Now Haman thought to himself, well, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, well, for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a, a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king king delights to honour. 
Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and horse and do just as you've suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was found was, was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows, 75 feet high, stands by Haman's house. He had it made up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he'd prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he'd reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This is God's word. Well, thank you. Do keep that uh, marvellous passage open in uh, Esther 5, 6, and 7. Let's pray as we hear the story and its significance together. God, our Father, please help me so to teach this story that we may understand its meaning and significance for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Who's in control of the empire? Wherever you live, it matters to know that, doesn't it? Who's in control in 
Kiev? Who's in control in Moscow? Who's in control wherever we live in the capital? Who controls the army, the media, the government? Who's in control, if I may put it this way, of the empire of the world? If there is any force, any person, any god or goddess in control of the empire of the world, you and I need to know. And the reason we're listening to the story of Esther from the Old Testament is not just because it's a marvellous story. And in this uh, today's passage, it's a very funny story. But that's not the reason we're listening to it. The reason we're listening to it is that it's the conviction of Christian people that this story, taken from history, this historical story with a, with a real historical location and time and, and background and so on, that it's a story which points to the big story of human history. And it points to the question of who's in control of the empire of the world. And therefore our reason for listening is not just historical interest, it's an existential interest that you and I need to know this. Mary and Ethan, as they grow, need to know who is in control of the empire of the world. The background to where we've got to is, um, is this, in, in, in chapters 1, 2, 3 and 4. It's taken place over quite a long time. We're in the Persian Empire around 600 years before Christ. And uh, the Persian Empire was vast, as most of the known world of, the, of those days, the civilized world. And uh, over the past nine years, uh, from the third year to the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, uh, a number of things have happened. A, a queen has been sacked. A young Jewish girl has been made queen a few years later called Esther. Mordecai, who is Esther's guardian, has discovered a plot to assassinate King Xerxes, has exposed the plotters um, and saved the king's life. And Haman, who is a vicious, genocidal enemy, not just of Mordecai, but of all the Jewish people, has been elevated to head of government, grand vizier, prime minister, something like that. And in, in, in chapter 3, we see that Haman has persuaded the king, Xerxes, to issue an edict that in a few months' time, every single one of the Jews in the Persian Empire can be killed by those who hate them, and there are many of them. And we've seen that the significance of this is that the Jews were the people of God. They were the people with whom God was in covenant, according to the Old Testament. And that Christian people today, whether Jew or Gentile, believers in the Messiah, believers in Christ, are people with whom God is in covenant, people to whom God, people who trust the promises of God, and who, like the Jews in the Persian Empire, are scattered around the world and sometimes under threat. So the story so far has taken place over nine years. It's been slow. Not a great deal has happened over quite a long period. 
But in today's chapters, we're going to see, if with apologies to the old song, what a difference two days make. Just 48 little hours brought the sun and the flowers where there used to be rain. We shall see. And it's as though the director of the movie slows the thing down. And stuff that's happened over nine years, and he's not told us a great deal about it, now over just inside two days, he slows the the, the camera work down and we see everything in detail. Harold Wilson famously said that a week is a long time in politics. 48 hours is a very long time in the government of the empire, as we shall see A couple of preliminaries before I do my best to tell the story. A couple of things to look for. Watch for things being turned upside down. Watch for reversals. Watch for top going bottom and bottom going top. That's a big theme um, in this passage. And the second thing is, is this. If you're a Bible reader and you read your Old Testament, you'll know that often in the Old Testament... There are foreshadowings or prefigurings of Jesus Christ. And sometimes they're very simple. So sometimes, for example, you have a king in David's line who foreshadows in some way great David's greater son. And that's a little bit like the way Narnia works, where there is one character who foreshadows Christ, Aslan. It's very straightforward and simple. In the story of Esther, there is more than one character who foreshadows Christ. It's a little bit more like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is a sort of Christ figure in his wisdom and power. Aragorn is a kind of Christ figure as the king, unrecognized, coming into his kingdom. Frodo is a kind of Christ figure as as he bears the burden of the ring. And in the book of Esther, we'll see that Esther and Mordecai, in different ways foreshadow Christ. So don't be put off that there's two of them foreshadowing Christ. It works in a slightly different way. Let me do my best to retell the story and try to help us to see some of the significance. At the end of chapter 4, Mordecai has persuaded Esther, who's kept very quiet about her Jewishness in the, in the palace, he's persuaded her to go to the king and to plead for the life of the Jewish people, the people of God. Chapter 5, verse 1, on the third day, Esther goes in as a mediator. She takes a huge risk. She, she puts on her royal robes, not a slinky black number to seduce, but her royal robes. She goes in as the queen of the Persian Empire. She knows she's not allowed to appear before the king without being summoned. She's not been summoned for a month, but she stands there as the mediator on behalf of her people. And the queen sees her, verse 2. Notice he sees Queen Esther. For only the second time in this story, she's described not just as Esther, but Queen Esther. Often from now on, she's described as Queen Esther. And he sees her, and he's pleased with her. He holds out the golden scepter as a way of saying, you may approach. She approaches, she touches the scepter. She asks, he asks her, verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it'll be given you. When Persian emperors said, I'll give you up to half the kingdom, they didn't mean it. What they meant any more than Herod meant that with, 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 at the time of John, John the Baptist. What they meant was, I'm feeling friendly, try me. 
That's what it means. But anyway, he says, I'm feeling friendly. Try me up to half the kingdom. What do you want? And Esther, who has learnt a great deal of wisdom somehow, says, verse 4, if it pleases the king, let the king, together with Haman, that's the prime minister, the evil hater of the Jews, come today to a banquet that I've prepared for him. She knows the way to a man's heart. He's through his stomach. She invites him to a banquet. Good, says the king, verse 5, bring Haman that we may do what Esther says. Esther is the one calling the shots now. So they go to the banquet that Esther's prepared and they're drinking wine at the end, our coffee and liqueurs, that kind of thing. And again he says, what's your petition? You can have up to half the kingdom, what do you want for the second time? And, uh, and we want to say, go for it, Esther. The Persian emperor has twice told you you can have whatever you want. Go for it, now's your chance. And Esther doesn't, verse 8. She says, um, here's my petition and my request, uh, that you and Haman will come to another banquet tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not sure why Esther does that. It may be that she's getting the king publicly to commit himself. By the time he finally gives her what she wants, she will have, he will have committed himself publicly three times and will lose tremendous face if he doesn't agree to, to what she asks. Anyway, the tension mounts. Haman goes home. He's enjoyed himself, verse 9. Happy, high spirits, full of himself. Except that he sees Mordecai, who is the one courtier in, the, in, the, Jewish, in the, the Persian capital who will not take his hat off and stand up and bow down to him and generally respect him. And he sees Mordecai and he's livid because Haman is so full of himself and the thing that Haman lives for is the praise of people. And the, those who live for the praise of people are never going to have enough. It's not enough to be prime minister of the Persian Empire. This one man won't take his hat off to me. And he's livid. And so anyway, he goes home, he restrains himself, he calls together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and he starts boasting, he must have been so boring. Don't you think? I mean, with Haman, it's never, Haman would never look you in the eye and say, tell me about yourself. How's your day been? He'd look you in the eye and say, let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you how rich I am. Let me tell you about my many sons. You'd think his wife would know. As the Duke of Edinburgh said to me the other day after I'd had coffee with David Cameron and went for a walk with the Archbishop and then I had to go off to meet the President, I'm so important. That's Haman, full of himself, centred on himself. And that's not all, verse 12. I'm the only person Queen Esther has invited to go with the king to this rather curious banquet. These banquets must have been a curious kind of cross between a summit and a date. It's like awkward chemistry, don't you think? The Queen, the King... And the Prime Minister? Anyway, there we are. But, but he's very cross, verse 13. He says, I'm furious about Mordecai. And his wife and the uh, friends say, well, look, verse 14, you're a big man. Build a big gallows. Probably a stake uh, to, to, to impale people on, because that's what the Persians used to do. You're a big man. Build a big stake, 75 foot high. Go and ask the king tomorrow morning to have Mordecai hanged or impaled on it, and then go and be happy. Enjoy yourself because everybody will bow down to you then who's alive. Haman was very pleased. He had the gallows built. Esther knows nothing of this. Esther's delay now looks like a really bad, bad idea, doesn't it? The king says, you can have what you want, you can have what you want. She says, come back to dinner tomorrow night. She doesn't know that tomorrow morning her guardian's going to be killed. She doesn't realize this. 
And when we come into chapter 6, something happens that is right outside the control that cannot be engineered by any of the human actors in the drama. And one of the great characteristics of the book of Esther is that God never appears. There's no miracle in the book of Esther. God never says anything. There's no prophets. It's a very unreligious book in a way. God just isn't there except he is. And it's the doctrine of divine providence that every movement in every neural pathway in every human brain, every circumstance, every event, every word, every deed is under the government of God. Chapter 6, verse 1, that night the king couldn't sleep. Just so happened that he had a sleepless night. No idea why, he just couldn't sleep that night. So he woke up, he got the lights turned on, and instead of the late night film, he ordered the book of the Chronicles, which were the record of his reign. Now, you, you and I may not think that's great late night reading, but the great thing about the book of the Chronicles is it's all about me if I'm the king. Story after story of which I'm the hero. So, Your Majesty, which volume would you like? Because he's been king for 12 years now, so there's a lot of volumes on the bookshelf. Oh, just pick any one at random. So they just pick a volume at random. Uh, which page, Your Majesty? Oh, just pick a page at random, and they just open it at random. And they just happen to read that years before there'd been a, an assassination plot against Xerxes' life, and that a Jew named Mordecai had saved the king's life. So Xerxes says, yeah, that was, I remember that plot. They were bad guys. It was a good thing that when they were impaled on stakes. What did I do to reward the, the man who saved my life? Persian emperors were very keen to reward people. You needed to know that if you were the friend of the Persian emperor, he would reward you, because he keeps you loyal. You know, somebody saved King Xerxes' brother's life and was given the, made governor of a province. That's what you did to keep people loyal. Make them ambassadors to London or whatever it may be. You know, that's what you do. The world hasn't much changed. Well, they looked it up in, the, in it and they said, Your Majesty, I'm really sorry, I don't think anything was done. And the king must have been rather shocked by that. Somebody saved my life and I didn't reward him all those years ago. And by this time, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's morning, it seems. And so the king says, verse 4, who's in the court? Which means, I need a counsellor, because Xerxes never makes a decision. He always needs somebody to tell him what to do, even though he's the most powerful man in the world. So he says, who's in the court? And Haman has just come in. Haman just, Haman's got the early train in, and he's, he's coming in, humming a happy tune, thinking to himself, ha, it's going to be a good day today. I'm going to get Mordecai impaled on a 75-foot stake. Everything's going fine. So he's coming in like a sort of overinflated balloon, humming this happy tune. Oh, good, says the king. Haman, bring him in. And, and, and then the, the king says to him, now I've got a little policy question for you, prime minister. What should be done, verse 6, for the man the king delights to honor? And the writer of the book gives us insight into Haman's thoughts. Isn't it wonderful? Haman thinks to himself, hmm, I wonder who the king could possibly want to honour. And he thinks around all the people he knows, 
And he thinks, I can't imagine anybody the king would rather honour than me. Because Haman's world revolves around me. He's always thinking about himself. He's always wondering how he feels. He's always wondering what kind of day he's had or is about to have. His whole world revolves around him. He's always thinking how lucky his colleagues are to have him in the office. How lucky his family are to have him in the family. How lucky his neighbours are to have him as a neighbour. He's always thinking about himself. And so when the king says what shall be done for the man the king delights to honour, he can think of no one but himself. So he thinks, well, this is my lucky day. He's already fantastically rich. He's already fantastically senior. But what he really wants is people to praise him. That's what he lives for. He lives for people saying, what a good guy you are. What a great guy you are. That's what he lives for. That's his idol. So he says, he comes up with this marvellous suggestion. He said, why don't we get some of the king's royal robes and uh, a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crest on the head. And uh, it's a bit like saying, why don't you, your majesty, let him fly in Air Force One and wear some of the crown jewels, if you'll forgive my confusing the um, metaphor. It's that kind of picture. And, and then uh, let one of the king's most noble princes, somebody really, really senior, the Duke of Norfolk, that kind of thing, let them robe this man and lead him on the horse through the city streets, saying, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Friends, before we get too down on Haman... We will be laughing at him in a moment. But before we get too down on Haman, you and I need to realise that Haman describes every human heart. Haman describes you and me in our self-centeredness, our absorption with ourselves, our longing for greatness, our desire that people should praise us. Usually our aspirations aren't quite as grand as his, and we're not as successful as he was. But his heart is no different, really, from ours. Anyway, verse 10, the king says, splendid idea. I knew I was right to make you prime minister. You always come up with such good suggestions. I think you should do everything you've suggested in detail. I don't want to tweak it at all for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, who's part of the civil service. Don't neglect anything. And Haman does this, no doubt, through gritted teeth. Almost surreal, isn't it? This, it's almost like a sort of transfiguration scene. This man, Mordecai, who's been loyal and righteous, but unrecognized. Now, just for a short moment, he, he's taken through the streets and everybody can see his righteousness the man the king delights to honour. Well, Haman goes home. What kind of day did you have in the office, darling? Not great. The um, annihilation of the Jews is still on track, but we've just had a slight hiccup with the Mordecai thing. Oh, she says, well, I gather he's Jewish. So if he belongs to God's people, you're bound to lose. You can imagine Haman saying, thanks, darling, you might have told me yesterday. <laughs> if he's Jewish, if he belongs to God, you're bound to lose. 
And at that point, verse 14, the king's eunuchs officials arrived and they hurried Haman away. Haman is no longer in charge. He's hurried off to the banquet. So you have the next banquet, evening of day two, chapter 7, verse 1. And again, they're drinking wine. It's coffee and liqueurs at the end of the meal. But what a difference one sleepless night has made. And the king asks again, Queen Esther, what's your petition? It'll be given you. What's your request, even up to half the kingdom? That's the third time he's offered that. And now she tells him. And look how she tells him, verse 3. Here's the petition. Grant me my life. Please may I not be killed. And here's my request. Please may my people not be killed. And so for the first time, Queen Esther identifies herself publicly with the people of God. My fate is their fate. Please may we not be killed. The king has no idea because although he signed the edict, he's such a gormless king, he never has any idea what's going on in his empire. So he just looks in astonishment, but Haman begins to know what's going on. And Esther goes on, verse 4, I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation, echoing word for word Haman's decree. And the king is furious, and with words that sound like machine gun fire, who is he, where is he, who's dared to do this thing? And then in this electric moment, Esther points the finger, hateful, hostile man, this wicked Haman. And it is an electric moment in the Persian Empire. And Haman is terrified. Haman perhaps has never realized that Esther is Jewish. He knows Mordecai is Jewish, but but he, he may well not know the connection. And he suddenly, it suddenly begins to dawn on him that these people of God whom he has despised have amongst them a queen, a mediator, one who has access to the throne room of the empire. Well, the king is furious and he goes out of the patio doors, the French windows, verse 7, into the palace garden. I imagine the king is trying to think how he can get round this without losing face. After all, he had signed the decree. And so he's feeling awkward. He's thinking, how am I going to undo this without losing face? And then Haman solves the problem for him. Haman has stayed behind. It's difficult for Haman. You're not, you're not meant to be on your own in a room with a woman of the harem. It's against the rules, obviously, as a man. He can hardly go out through the patio doors into the garden with the king. It's not a good time to do that. If he goes the other way, it looks as if he's running away. So he stays, and he decides to plead for his life with Queen Esther. The queen has pleaded for her life with the king. Now Haman begs the queen for his life. And then the king comes back through the French windows at a very interesting moment. Mordecai the Jew had refused to fall before Haman. Now Haman, the enemy of the Jews, falls before Esther, 
the Jew. But such poor timing and such a terrible ambiguity about his movement, so much so that one of the old Jewish versions says that Haman here falls because the the angel Gabriel gives him a push. Just as the king comes back in, Haman is falling ambiguously at the couch where Esther reclines. It is, of course, unthinkable that he was actually attempting to to, to rape the queen. But he has conveniently solved the king's problem because the king can interpret it that way and he can get him for treason, which he immediately does. Will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And they cover Haman's face. And then Harbona, who's one of the officials, makes a really helpful suggestion. Your Majesty, I don't know if this is a good time to mention this, but there's a stake 70 foot, 5 foot high just by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king, just in case you'd forgotten. You can imagine Haman muttering under his breath, thanks, Harbona. That's a really helpful suggestion. (laughs) And so the king says, hang or impale him on it. And then the king calms down. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, which we'll come back to next week, Mordecai is promoted and the signet ring, the king's password that has been given to Haman is now given to Mordecai. What a difference two days make. Who's in control of the empire? And if this story is in any way a picture of some lasting truth, if it points to some big global truth, you and I do need to understand and to know the answer. Very interesting. You and I are hardwired when we hear this story to boo Haman because he is so self-evidently wicked and to cheer when Haman is destroyed, Mordecai is promoted, Esther's mediation is, is, is accepted. You and I are hardwired to feel that things are working out right. And if we are hardwired to think that about a story in history... Is it not possible that the reason we're hardwired to feel things are working out right is because this is indeed a picture, a historical picture of something that is true in the universe? Nine years of the story developing in King Xerxes' reign, two days of crisis. In the story of the world, centuries of waiting and preparation and promise. A birth, unnoticed by most people, insignificant to most people. Thirty years of quiet growing up. Three years of public ministry. And then at the end, three hours hanging on a Roman cross. What a difference, three hours makes. And the New Testament teaches that in those three hours, everything turned upside down. 
That in those three hours, the the, the, the prince of this world, as Jesus called him, the, the kind of Haman, the, the one who is the epitome of self-centeredness and lies and hatred, and the one who has human beings in his sway because of our messed upness and our sin, that he is decisively judged because his power over sinners will be removed. And that at that time in those three three hours, paradoxically, Jesus of Nazareth, righteous, unrecognized, unacknowledged, as he is lifted up on the cross for those three hours, he wins the victory. And the resurrection is the public affirmation of that. And as the Bible puts it, he has ascended into heaven, that he is in the throne room of heaven. If you want to know who controls the empire of the world, the answer is that because of those three hours on the cross, the forces of evil, the Haman figures, do not ultimately control this world, but that there is a righteous man, a man who lived his whole life loving God, loving people, doing good, and that he has been vindicated, and that he is the man the king delights to honor. And you and I need to know that, because if that is true, it matters hugely who we identify ourselves with. You and I, by nature, are Haman-like people. We are obsessed with ourselves. We think about ourselves, our feelings, our circumstances, how people treat us. Our lives revolve around us, me at the center. That's what I'm like by nature. So we're all like by nature. We are Haman figures. And one of the things we learn from this story is that, 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 that Haman, in his extreme stupidity and extreme pride, comes to an extreme and sudden end. But that all of us, if we continue in self-centeredness, living in God's world as though we're at the center, all of us, the time will come, perhaps suddenly, when as with Haman, you and I discover that we've made a terrible mistake. So that's one thing. We do need to learn from that. But the other thing we learn, if we are trusting or we're thinking whether we might trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be hugely glad that just as Mordecai, righteous Mordecai, was vindicated and promoted, so righteous Jesus has been vindicated and promoted And he is in control of the empire of the world. Now the story goes on, and we've got one more episode next week. And the people of God are not out of danger. But we're right to feel that by the time we get to this stage of the story, we're right to feel that the crisis is over. That because Haman has been destroyed and Mordecai has been promoted, it's going to work out right in the end. And if that is a picture of what happened at the cross when the enemy of human beings 
was judged. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, was promoted and given the name that is above every name, then you and I will be glad if we're following him and confident that in the throne room of the universe there stands one who speaks for us and has lived and died for us. Friends, I don't know, I mean I know some of you, but, but I don't know everybody and I don't have insight into your heart any more than you have an insight into my heart. Maybe there's somebody here and you, you're saying, this is very new to me. Christian faith is very new to me. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I'd love to encourage you. The book of Esther is probably not the most obvious way into Christian faith. But I'd love to encourage you, read, read the New Testament. Because if these things are true, they are very important. And for those of us, many of us, of course, who are trusting in Jesus... Let's be very, very glad at the exaltation of Jesus, the Righteous One. One more episode next week, but let's be quiet for a moment now, and I'll pray. God, our Father, we praise you that the Lord Jesus, in his goodness and love and righteousness, is the man whom you delight to honour. We ask that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to be his disciples. We ask it in his name. Amen.